you want to turn in your Bibles, today we'll be in Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2, and we're going to go all the way down to the end of chapter 3, but I'm only going to read down to chapter t- uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. Job 2, starting in verse uh, 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they each from his own place, they, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, they made an appointment together to come and to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse, let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Let's pray. Father, right now, this text we're going to look at today is very dark. It is the literal, it is the darkest part of this book. And Lord Jesus, it reflects some of the darkest moments of your life. So God, help us, I pray, by your spirit, for your glory. May may what I say be clear. And Lord, may our hearts respond. May they be formed like a hot iron upon your word. That Lord, when grief and anguish come to us, God, we may know how to respond. Help us now, we pray. We need you in every moment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Yancey wrote a book called Disappointment with God. And in it, he tells a story that I thought was very helpful. Sam Storms recounts it. I want to read it to you, a little bit of it. So he talks, the the story is, is based around this guy named Richard. Now, Richard was converted to Christ when he was in college. And not long after his conversion, his parents announced they were getting a divorce. Notwithstanding Richard's fervent prayers for the preservation of their marriage, they split. This was his first experience of feeling let down by God. Every decision he made in life was preceded by prayer and Bible study. 
But everything he did seemed to backfire. A lucrative job offer was withdrawn and given to someone less qualified. He soon found himself in debt. His fiancée left him, and he began to experience a series of physical problems. Finally, feeling that he had reached his wit's end, he decided to seek God in an all-night prayer, a prayer meeting. He fasted and prayed and zealously sought the Lord. But all he heard was silence. Nothing. And after it was over, he said, he said this, I staked my life on God, and God let me down. Now, we're going to look at a text today that I would argue is the darkest, the deepest, darkest pit of the book of Job. And I would argue it's one of the darkest places in all of Scripture. And here's the thing about God's Word, and I just want to say this as we start. It would be really easy for me this morning to be like, this is a really... I don't know. It rakes against the the part of me that says, ah, I don't really like this. It's almost like sitting with someone that's suffering. It kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. But if we were to do that, we would be missing something critically important from God's word. So I want us to just sit this morning with Job. And it's going to feel very like, this is very dark, Daniel. This is very deep. And I want to be like, yep, that's what it's meant to do to us. So I want you to see this morning in this. That even in the darkest moments, lament offers a well-traveled path of faithfulness in the midst of human anguish. Let me say that one more time. Even in the midst, or even in the darkest moments, lament offers a well-traveled path of faithfulness in the midst of human anguish. And if you're not dealing with human anguish this morning, then you're probably like, well... This is kind of an annoying text. But one day, there's going to come a day where you will find yourself deeply anguished. And the question will be then, what will you do with it? And I hope this text will will be a help to us this morning. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to see is watching loneliness. Watching loneliness. It's a loneliness observed, or observing loneliness. Should be slides back there for that. Thank you. Yes. Watching loneliness. Observing a lonely man. Listen to what it says in verse 11 of chapter 2. Go back there with Job's three friends. It says, now, there were, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Now we're going to talk about these three guys the next many, many chapters. Okay, So I'm not going to even talk about them here. But this is what they did in verse 11, the end of verse 11. They made an appointment together to show him sympathy and comfort. What I want you to see is exemplary friends. Exemplary friends. You've got a friend in me. That's one of the only bright moments of this sermon will be a reference to Toy Story. You've got a friend in me. If we know the story of Job, it's really easy to think, well, Job's friends, they're just jerks. They're just a bunch of jerks that really didn't like Job. But that doesn't get the picture of what Job's painting for us. These friends, the word there for friends, is the same word that's used to describe Jonathan and David's friends, friendship in the scriptures. Listen to 1 Samuel 18.1. It 
This is, this, is, this is describing Jonathan and David's friend, the same word that's used of these friends. It says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. So if we're looking at these friends and we're like, man, those guys are just they're jerks. They're so mean. I want to be really clear. They were not just fair-weather friends. They weren't Facebook friends. They weren't just trying to get something from Job. These weren't even just acquaintances. They were deep abiding friends who came from a long distance away. Loyal friends who went to great extremes to make an appointment with their friend. It says in verse 11, they made an appointment together to show him sympathy and comfort. We're hearing the intentions of these friends even. To show him sympathy and comfort him. To show sympathy is the same thing we would think about when we go to a viewing or when we go to a funeral. We go to show sympathy. To, to wag, literally the Hebrew is, to wag our head, to shake our head in anguish on the other's behalf. But that word for comfort as well, it's interesting. There, These are their intentions. We're getting the friend's intentions here. And it says they came to show him sympathy and comfort him. And this is not just a consoling. This is not the same thing as just empathy. They didn't want to just come and sit with their friend in, their, in his suffering. Empathy may be silent, but comfort must include speech. To comfort involves speaking to the mind and to the heart. One, one author, I liked what he said. He said, comfort is an action sometimes called speaking to the heart that hopes and intends to bring about a change or bring about change in how the sufferer thinks and feels about his suffering. So we need to see these friends were not just a bunch of bums. These were not people that were just coming to him and saying, well, Joe, we, we liked you when you had stuff, but we don't really like you now. No, they loved him. They, they came to, to, to be there with him, to love him, to serve him. And listen to what it says in verse 12. So you can just picture them coming, seeing their friends, sitting on his ash heap. It says, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And if we think about this as Christians, these friends give us, actually they help give us a pattern of how we should think about our own suffer, other sufferers. This is the only instance we will see the friends as an example in this book. They, they set for us an example of what it means in Scripture to weep with those who weep. To weep with those who weep. Romans twelve fifteen says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I want you to notice three elements of the, the, their example they set for us. The first is this. It's showing up or show up. It's attending to suffering. Upon arrival, these friends realized that this, the situation was far worse than they had imagined he was a shell. Job was a great man, and they come, and they don't even recognize him. And these friends, as they come toward him, they see him as a distance, and they're deeply disturbed. And oftentimes, as, as, when tragedy strikes us around, what we want to do is avoid. There's, there's a heart posture that says, and it's a wrong heart posture, that when we see grieving, we think, I shouldn't go close to that. What if I say the wrong thing? What, what, if, I, what if I do the wrong thing? What if, I, what if I say something that's just rude or, or not timely? 
But this fear didn't deter them, and it ought not deter us. So when we see other people suffering, we should, we should show up in that way. Here's the second thing, and if you're parents, you probably tell your kids not to use this word that I'm about to use. But the second is shut up, or be quiet, if you will, but it works well together. So show up, shut up, silence before speech. Look at, listen to what they said in verse 12 and 13. But when they gazed intently from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. They began to weep loudly. Each of them tore their robes. They threw dust in the air over their heads. Then they sat down with him on the ground. Listen to this. For seven days and seven nights, yet no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. These men didn't come to Job thinking, well, we have all the answers, Job. You, you, you don't know anything, Job. We have all the answers. They didn't do that. They didn't try to explain away all the suffering. They didn't come with some, and again, there's, there's a movement within Christianity, evangelical Christianity, that's happy and slappy. Just, just pull yourself together. Jesus died for you. Get over it. No, that's not at all what they do. So they, they shut up. Here's the second one. They teared up. They teared up, weeping with those who weep. They sat on the ground with him in silence for a week straight. They didn't say a word. There were no words that came to them. Nothing could change the situation. We need to see that these friends were not trying to harm Job. They were trying to bless him. But now the narrative shifts. It moves a little bit here. So we move from watching loneliness in a man. Now we're going to listen to loneliness. Listening to loneliness. And I have a question for you. Does suffering have a sound? The suffering, when, when, an, when something awful happens, we think about Richard that we heard about at the beginning. His, his parents got a divorce. He loses a job. He, 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 all these different things are happening to him. And the question is, does the suffering make noise? And the answer is yes, it does. Except it's the sound of lament. Now I want to qualify something up front before we look at this text. Uh, if there seems a moment here, as we're reading Job's lament, that Job seems to kind of step outside the bounds of faithful submission, we need to remember something, that he's only a type of Christ. I'm not going to say this again, because we're going to see a lot in here that's like, wow, he said that. That's pretty, that's pretty harsh. But I want you to see that he's a type. He's not on the same level of, of the Lord Jesus. So listening to loneliness. Now, some have suggested, and I think they're right, that there was a social requirement when you meet with someone that's suffering to wait until they speak in order for you to speak. And I think this is probably what they were thinking. And they probably were thinking, again, and we'll see here soon, that what he was going to say when he spoke was a confession of sin, something he did wrong. But what they're about to hear is not any of that. So I, this, this next section is in three parts. It's in the past. Here's what we're going to look at first, the past. He's lamenting his birth. Look at what it says in verse 3. Let, let the day perish. This is, this is the word, words of a man who's lost everything. Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. And then he jumps down to verse 6 and 7. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. 
Let no joyful cry enter it. Notice where Job's anguish goes. His anguish is not toward God. And now remember, Job had everything taken from the Chaldeans, from the Sabaeans, from fire from heaven. So it would be really easy to be like, Lord, just curse them. Curse the Sabaeans. Curse the Chaldeans. Look at this situation. But what's his curse against? Against his birth and his conception. Now when we hear, this is the same thing that's true in our day as it is in their day. When we hear someone has conceived, the first thing that comes to our mind is joy. Abundant joy, hope. And the hope is, here is the life of a child that's going to grow up. And here's a life that is awaiting great anticipation. And Job is essentially saying, I am so utterly hopeless. You should remove any hope of my existence. Even if you could go back and stop me from becoming a child, I would be without hope. He goes on in verses 4 and 5, and he says, Let that day, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the darkness of the day terrify it. You know what Job is asking for here? He's asking to be God forsaken. He's saying, Lord, just forsake me. I have nothing left. Just just leave me alone. I have nothing left. And he goes on in verse 8 and he says, Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. What he's saying is he's saying, if, hey, anybody who can curse Leviathan and, and go back and tell him to remove that day I was born, do that, please. He's hearkening back. He's remembering what God says in Genesis 1. Let there be light. And he says, if God is where light dwells, may I dwell in darkness. May I dwell in the depths of darkness. He remembers that God created the light and he's asking God, just undo my life. He's asking to be decreated. And for Job to talk about darkness like this, he's saying, uncreate me. Just, just uncreate me and my life will be better. Now I want you to notice something here. This is really important. Job is in no way here contemplating suicide. Although he, does, he, although he doesn't take his own life, he wishes that God would. There's nothing, this is what he would say, there's nothing in my life worth hoping for. There's no future for me. Would there be, if there's no past, all of the trouble that he had faced would be much easier if he had not been born at all. And I want you guys to see this. It's surprised by lament. Surprised by lament. We hear these words and we think, Job has just gone off the deep end. He's not a Christian anymore. Look at, listen to the way he's talking. We need to remember what God says of him at the end of this book. He says, this man is blameless. This is really important because these words that we're hearing Job say are from the lips of a blameless man. And if they're from the lips of a blameless man, then we should, we should at some level at least attend to the fact that maybe what he's saying here is what we need to do when we experience anguish. The general thrust of this lament is a cursing of the day he was born is simply just showing, it's verbal language to show just how miserable he is. 
He is so miserable that he could wish that he'd never been born at all. And if we just, if we just come back from this and we're like, Job is deeply distressed. We've missed the point. We've missed the point entirely. Job is not trying to inform us. He's trying to move our hearts and our affections toward he is in utter outrage. He has nothing. He's seeking to ignite in us anguish. And I would argue that many Christians, me included, do you know why we struggle to grieve within the body of Christ? You know, this is actually not an obscure lament. I don't know the numbers. I should have looked this up. But there are so many laments throughout the Psalms. Psalms that we would hear and we would think, are they even a Christian? Like, am I allowed to say something like this? If you listen to just turn on the radio, turn on Christian music, you will never hear language like this. And I wonder, we as the body of Christ, if we learn to grieve in this type of lament, listen to Psalm 13, like we, like we heard read this morning. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? These are the words of lament. These are the words of someone that does not sense God is near. Job's experience is not unlike our experience. For even the most godly and faithful believers, this is not an abstract feeling. These are not weird things that are happening. Believers can be discouraged, depressed, and facing despair. But the question is, what do they do with it when they get there? And I want us to see that in the darkest moments, lament offers a well-traveled path of faithfulness in the midst of human anguish. So we think about what Richard even talked about at the beginning. He's sitting there. He's lost everything. His parents have been divorced. He's lost his job. His wife just left him. He has nothing. And all he's thinking is, well, I prayed. And I had Bible study. Why wouldn't the Lord bless me in this? Why would he allow this? And those whys are meant to draw us to lament, just like we see here with Job. Here's the second piece that he's lamenting, though. So he's lamenting the past, his birth. He's also lamenting the present. He's lamenting his life. Again, it would be very easy to just be like, well, these are really uncomfortable passages. Let's not talk about them. But look at what he says in verse 11. 11 Verse 11 to 19. He says, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? So those are both expressions uh, of just birth, basically. The knees receiving him or it would be like of the midwife. And he's saying, like, why? Why didn't I die there? Why didn't I die at delivery? Why didn't I die at, at my mother's breast? And he goes on, he says, For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. And Job is continually asking, God, why did you not stop me from just existing at all? Then I would be at peace. I'm not saying this is peace necessarily. But he's asking hyperbole, why? Why is this? Listen to what he then goes on to say, verse 14 through 19. 
with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there. The slave and the free is free from his master. And he's continuing toward lamenting the fact that God did not remove him earlier. Both kings and counselors find their place there. They all find their place. Both kings and counselors, slaves and taskmasters, they find themselves in the same place. And it's death. But notice, here's what I want you to notice in all that he just said. Who's he talking to? This is what's utterly important. You want to know the, the, the chasm distinction between grumbling, un, unrighteousness, and rebellion, and lament? Here it is, very simply. He's lamenting toward God. He's not just sitting in his room by himself, Daniel, I'm so angry. He's saying, Lord, I'm so angry. He's complaining, and he's complaining upward. He's lamenting toward God. There's not in this the heart of rebellion. This is the heart of anguished confession. And if you see nothing else from today other than that top statement, see this. That there is no conflict between honest expression of human anguish and faithful submission to God. They are not at odds. They marry together that human anguish and faithful submission are not competing agendas. Lament is the honest expression of human anguish. And lament comes from the, fifth, from the lips of the faithful. And you may think, well, Daniel, where, where else do you see this? I want you to see something. Hebrews, and you don't have to turn there, Hebrews 5. This, this passage has always been very elusive. I think to many people it is to me. It's a harder passage, but I want you to see this. That the Lord Jesus, we think, well, Daniel, this isn't something Jesus would have said. And maybe not completely, but listen to what it says in Hebrews 7, 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Do we hear it? The Lord Jesus himself, God incarnate, did not come down and he was not. I think we think of Jesus like this stoic who came down and is like, yes, I see human suffering here. Hmm. I see human suffering. Get over it. I'm the son of God. I'm here to... Even John 11. He waits until Lazarus dies. And he goes to the tomb. And what's he do? He weeps. He weeps. Why? With loud cries and tears. To him, he says in verse 7, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And then it goes on in verse 8 and 9. This is the son of God it's referring to. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus was perfect and and sinless, but he did not come pre-suffered. This is very important. He did not come as a pre-suffered son. He came as one who was perfect and yet did not suffer. But it says he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, that's becoming perfect by the way he suffered, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
we simply catch a glimpse of lamenting the Lord here, but then we also see it even in the life of our Lord. Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to, listen to these words, and you tell me if these sound like words of lament. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now pause. Did he know that this was the plan? Of course he knew it was the plan. Of course he knew what he had to do. He knew that this was obedience to his Father in heaven. And yet he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Lament is the path that the scriptures give us. Lament is the path that Job takes. And lament is the path of our Savior. I loved what one guy said. He said, saving faith is the faith that has as its content the gospel and promises of God in Christ and does not give up. Just as Jesus did not give up, but chose to endure God's plan in his own flesh to purchase that rest for, that rest for us. Job's crying out for rest here. He's crying out for the rest of death. And what Jesus has done is he's actually purchased that rest for us. When suffering strikes us, brothers and sisters, the call on us is to lament. And that crying out is not unfaithfulness. It is not unfaithfulness. It is the very heart of faithfulness that cries upward. So even in the darkest moments, lament offers a well-traveled path of faithfulness in the midst of human anguish. I want you to see also the future. This is the last piece for Job. And he says the future. He's questioning the future. Listen to what he says in verse 20. He says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. He's again basically asking, why did God give life to these at all? Why did God give me all these things and then take them away? Why would God have given me all these things, take them away, and not take me with them? Why did God bother to make the world at all? Listen to what he says in verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Now, again, he's, he's remembering that God has hedged him in. But now he's saying that that hedge is actually a prison cell. So, so before it was God hedging him in from the outside, but now he's saying, now God has hedged me in, and it's razor wire on the inside. Not to guard Job, but to keep him in. I want you to think about something for a minute. You know, when we're, when we're children, the thing we always want is to get out. And for freedom. Maybe, maybe others weren't like me. But I think when I've observed most children, they want to get out from their parents' rule. They want to stay up just a little bit later at night. They want freedom. You get older and that freedom gradually increases to the point that parental authority no longer has a say over you. You live for a good many years with this kind of freedom, but then something begins to happen. You grow older. Life begins to have a cramped narrowness on us. We were able to travel the world at some point, but then it, then it moves from traveling the world to just, just confined to a nation, no longer going abroad. Then from a nation, we're like, oh, we could go to California, we could go here, we could go there. We go from a nation to a neighborhood. 
and then from a neighborhood to an occasional walk in the garden, and from the garden to being just housebound, and from the house to the bedroom, and from the bedroom to the coffin and to the casket, ultimately. And this is exactly what Job is experiencing. He's experiencing it, and yet he's saying, I'm still a young man, and yet this is my experience of life. He's experiencing this because this is the left-handed providence that God has he's received from the Lord's hand. And then listen to what he says in verse 24 through 26. He says, For my sighing comes, now that word for sighing would be like a word like roaring or bellowing, like a, like a cow bellows. Just, a, just a, a roaring out. This is not just sighing. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. And my groanings like poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And the question that's looming, is meant to loom to us, is will, will Job do it? Will he curse God? Will he utter a blasphemy? Will Satan be right? And here's what I want you to see. The answer is no. We'll, we'll find that at the end of the book. But I want you to also see the question from the Lord Jesus himself. The question actually from the cross. And again, the question of why from Jesus. The question why is not necessarily a search for an answer. Jesus cried from the cross in, in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. He quotes... Psalm 22, and he says this. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was not unaware of what was happening to him. He knew why this was happening. He had predicted this would happen. But in a moment of pure agony and human anguish, he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? The question why allows the sufferer to encapsulate all the pain, chaos, and abandonment that is felt in that moment. The question why can either come from a heart of unbelief, which is focused inward. Why would the Chaldeans come? Why would the Sabaeans come? Why? Why me? Why me? It's a very self-centered, ungodly approach. But then we've just heard all of this lament from Job. And that's actually the, the faithful cry. That even in the darkest moments, lament offers a well-traveled path. And ultimately, it's a well-traveled path that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has, has traveled. It's a path that he traveled on our behalf. That he went to the cross and died. And cried out, why have you forsaken me? That lament offers a well-traveled path of faithfulness. In the midst of human anguish. I want you to think about Richard at the beginning. It would be very easy for Richard to just live in this in a heart of unbelief, just wondering why, why me, why this, why now? But when he takes those questions and he turns them vertically, they turn from a heart of unbelief to a heart of faithfulness and belief. Because lament offers a well-traveled path of faithfulness in the midst of human anguish. I want us to consider, and again, maybe, maybe you're in a season of anguish. Maybe you're not. But I will tell you that someday anguish will come. 
And when anguish comes, the question will be, what will we do with it? The question won't be if it will come. The question will be mainly when it will come. So when it comes, will we respond with lament, faithful lament, or will we respond as, as we see Job's friends here do soon? So I want just to give you just a time of response, just a time of reflection to consider what we've heard. And then I'm going to pray for us. Father, you, you know every moment, every instance of human anguish that this room, everyone in this room has ever experienced. It's easy, Lord, to have a response like we heard from Richard this morning that says, does God even hear? Does he even know? And Lord, we know from your word that you are weeping with those who weep. And you're mourning with those who mourn. So God, help us as your people to weep with those who weep, to be, to be representatives of you to those who are suffering. But Lord, also when suffering does come, when anguish does come, that you would teach us the gift of lament. That we would, you would teach us in the way of Jesus and you would teach us in the way of Job that we've seen that lament is the path of faithfulness in suffering. And it's not a path we walk by ourselves. It's a path, Lord Jesus, that you have well trodden. So Lord, when we find ourselves in those moments, I pray that we would turn our prayers upward. We would turn our cursings and our and our griefs upward toward you, our complaints toward you. Help us, we pray, with that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.